Hey, so we got uh, Ben Ford, Ben Ford here, commando development. It's not about developing commandos. It's about commandoizing development itself. So it's a convergence synergy of some of my favorite things in the world. The military industrial complex, uh, progress, you know, uh, all, all kinds of awesome things. And of course, the sexier part of the military industrial complex, which is your, uh, your kind of elite guard, which is always the, the fun part of military history, I find. Um, yeah. And how is that? Does that capture it a little bit? Yes, yeah, strongly okay. on, the, on the coaching side of things, hey, but um, very much in corporate development, etc. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of this kind of you know militarizing of of um, of business, which I, I'm I'm struggling a little bit with how to pitch this because it, it's almost like that 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 sexy end of the military is what gets grasped onto, but actually the really important stuff is the you know operating in complexity and it's the principles that underlie it that yeah. are actually way more interesting to me like i you know when i left the military i discounted my my experiences for a long time because i thought it was completely different yeah and it's only when i came back through the lens of you know research on kinefin and ooda loops and and stuff that i started to realize what i had experienced in a very different light the kinevin's good isn't it that uh, what's that edward snowden Dave, Dave Snowden. Dave Snowden. That's what, sorry, I got the wrong Snowden. Yeah, I got him mixed yeah. up. Very different fields there. Yeah, yeah. No, can never be great. Dave Snowden. Hey. Uh, well, look. Um, yeah, it is sexy. Like, uh, so I, I, I sort of uh, like just from an indigenous point of view, you know, I, I've tried introducing this idea of you know, kind of like dynamic subordination in in leadership. Uh -huh. And it's kind of like, you know, you get these blank stares and mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes, but uh, we can't go backwards. And does it scale? I said, well, the Marines, the Marines used, and I talk about the Marines and they're like, oh, well, that's great. That's exciting. Like there's something sexy about a, a, an elite squad of men on a high protein diet, sort of <laughs> uh, secretly storming a beach somewhere to assassinate someone. Um, you gotta yeah, that's have so weird, isn't it? When when, yeah. you, when you peel it back like that, that's just fucking weird. Like uh, <laughs> we is. should not be fetishizing that stuff at all. But <laughs> there it is. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you want a more high risk environment um, where there's more at stake, you know, for, for one one fuck up, I mean, who's your stakeholders there? Um, yeah, you got <laughs> you got to get it right. So I suppose, like you say, it's uh, it kind of it's a crucible. Yeah. Which over a, a number of centuries, um, it's sort of boiled down. It's it's inheriting uh it's inheriting bits and pieces of a tradition of 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 sort of military disruptive innovation though that goes back a bit further. I reckon. Like I don't know if it, oh, yeah. I mean it's definitely centuries has been the intense crucible as you know as war became more industrialized. But I think you know like for example like what what the Romans did with the phalanx the phalanx you know yep. what they what they did with that just completely revolutionized warfare made it something that pretty much anyone could do um yeah you know anyone yep, could totally. come in and join the totally. ranks as long as you drilled enough you know and you know you kept yourself in that standing army and that was your occupation pretty much anyone could be made into a soldier and and any group of men could be made um into a highly effective sort of slice and dice dies death machine so yeah, you, so the, and, and the they inherited there's an inheritance of that tradition, you know, coming through yeah. the Teutonic sort of Prussian 
you know, the, the kind of industrial machine of warfare and then through the US, of course, through all those Prussian consultants and, and, then, and then boom, throughout the world, World War One, World War Two, boom, 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 off we go. From yeah. brass so, cannons so they, to bloody steel cannons overnight, bros. Yeah, so there's that, there's that kind of whole innovative destruction type of thing that ha has happened over those centuries. You accidentally, actually, said, you accidentally said destruction then. Accidentally? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not accident. Innovative destruction. All right, let's go with that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's what it is, right? It's, it's innovating in order to destroy stuff. Um, that's it. To destroy the enemy. That's it. Um, so you create, you know, and this is where, you know, why, why destruction and creation is such a great little paper, because you create in order to destroy, but that act mm. of destruction creates new raw materials to, mm. to create new things from. Now, that, that, that um, early complexity thinker you were talking about, uh, you're talking about there, um, yeah, just do the citation for that. Um, for oh, yeah, um, John Boyd. John, John Boyd, Boyd. Um, Destruction and Creation, written in 1976, and still extremely relevant to you know cutting edge theories on cognition and 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 everything now and it's a tiny it's like six six pages long and it's mm. spot on stands up doesn't it yep mm. so just just one point on on the the commando side of like the elite military so the special operations um where special operations started in um world war ii and, and I wanted to pick up on this because because of what you were talking about with um, with Glenn about Afghanistan, mm. we wouldn't have had special operations if a guy called Colin Gubbins hadn't been fighting in Af in Afghanistan in the twenties. Right. And he realised he realised that without um, without this kind of non-linear elite kind of raiding mentality, you, you mm. just end up with that force on force that screwed us over in World War One, right? So. Mm. He came up with this idea of the special operations executive, and you know what became the modern kind of special operations units in 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 the Western militaries, and it is really stepping outside of the traditional kind of military, top-down command and control hierarchical. Right. Well, you had this, yeah. and but that came out of this like one of the weirdest parts of history ever, where like uh, there was something being leveraged whereby. Uh, like a single person or the smallest amount of people could could do more damage or change on, on the face of the earth than any singular organism in the history of the world. So, you know, the Dulles brothers there, you know, the name airports after them now. Almost no one knows about the Dulles brothers. No, I don't. Please. They're the ones who redrew the world. They're the reason that people were in Afghanistan at the first in the first place making them. <laughs> It's like they invented Afghanistan. They invented all of these countries. Uh, mm. Like after after the First World War, when the entire country was redrawn, you know, completely, and you know, people sort of went, "Ah, we don't need Macedonia. We don't need you know, all this sort of yeah. thing." That was a couple of twenty-year-olds, like elite, you know, um, yeah. kids, pretty much straight out of boarding school who just come out of their internship at the law firm. <laughs> they got to sit down and redraw up the world, you know, with yeah, a couple. They wanted of, to make everything efficient, presumably. Yeah, they're elite French buddies that you know they met on ski camp or something. <laughs> they were like given the task of redrawing up the planet, and they eventually they went on to they invented the CIA, for example. Ah. You know, so I reckon so there there would have been a convergence there. So this fellow's inventing you know your black ops stuff and your your um 
um i shouldn't say black ops that's a different thing isn't it but your special special operations or i don't i don't know what you call yeah. that one um so i think i mean there's always been there's always been this kind of spectrum of you know you conscripted kind of you know run-of-the-mill phalanx type troops and then there's mm. always been there's always been an element of the smaller more fluid um you know operating around the edges poking at the, the vulnerabilities you know to a lesser or greater degree mm. um mm. you know you had the the original snipers in in the american wars of independence um uh, I can't remember the Praetorians, I suppose, perhaps yeah. in, in Roman times. Right. So there's always there's always been the it was the elite guard, you know, like um yeah. like Napoleon's bloody immortals yeah. that he flogged. Yeah, from so the, you've the always Persian you've model. always had that kind of you know, the 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 80 20, well, probably not 80 20, mm. maybe you know, 95 5 split of yeah special operations and run of the mill and, and you know it, it's the same in innovation in companies now right you don't have mm. everybody doing innovation you have mm. most people doing steady state well actually i mean you, you could probably argue that that needs to change quite a lot mm. with the pace well, that, of change that ended that ended with napoleon and it was at that um god what, what i don't know why the the words not coming into my head now where he was defeated by the brits um what the hell was that battle called again ah oh. <laughs> I've forgotten as well. They freaking, it, it's like, for some reason, I've got Agincourt in my head and it's freaking, no, it was a place. It was a field. Start with W or Waterloo. Ah, Waterloo. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, and it was just the kid, he'd won that freaking whole thing. But then like he wanted his glorious finish. He wanted his money shot. So he sent mm. his elite elite guards up because there's like a handful of cockneys left on the, on the hill. What just death from cannon fire, 10 years of cannon fire. You know, they got no teeth. They've like never washed their ass, like ever. They're just like, <laughs> just, you know, they can't read. They don't know anything. And they're just like, you know, oh, you're going to send your best up here, is you? You know, like proper, like scousers, you know, like just a few mm -hmm. left there. <laughs> and they just handed his ass to him, like, you know, on the, on the hill. And, and just yep. completely demoralized. And then the whole French army, which has won that war, won that entire battle. You know, they saw the immortals fall, like the elite squad. And then that, that they, they were completely demoralized and turned and fled. That's, I reckon that's the big untold story of, of Waterloo. You want to get that, a, I mean, it's you, so, it's you so get a couple of geezers with nothing to lose on top of the hill and you, you're all good. Yeah, but but also just how, you know, we, we always, well, certainly in the West, I'm not going to put, words into your mouth but we always want to think of this kind of linear you know cause and effect and this leads to this leads to this leads to this and therefore oh, yeah. the battle of waterloo was won and then actually yep. it's not like that at all you know the 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 outcome will pivot on the smallest of little things yeah and the most non-linear of outcomes can come from a you know a cascade effect of one one event sometimes that's it but we just well, we just don't have you know that, that doesn't fit into our well, that's why you talk about like I don't know how clunky the whole sort of sort of agile um, kind of sexiness is, <laughs> you know, because it doesn't have good fundamental principles. So when you're thinking about that crucible um, that's coming out of you know the more recent centuries of elite military units, um, there's a set of fundamental principles there that you like into um, uh, good abstractions in software development. Yeah, because you you had ten years doing that and you. 
Yeah, pretty much. You didn't even have a computer to start with. You just had a book on, what was it, Python or something? Well, I, I did have a computer. I had a, a, a laptop, sat on board a ship. Yeah, no, but no, no internet. internet. No book. internet, that's yeah. right, yeah. And so you taught yourself coding there. So you, yeah. you got that idea of if you've got the good abstractions, aka fundamental principles, then you got your building building blocks map into any domain and you can be responsive in the moment, you know what I mean? But you have to have the right fundamental principles. Um, yeah. I was interested I in that. I was really interested in that and thought we could um, we could throw them around a bit and test them. Yeah, road, te road I mean, test them on some bloody uh, I don't know some thought experiments. Yeah, definitely. I mean, reading Sand Talk already has fulfilled that purpose for me to to a great degree, right? It's it's allowed me to turn those principles over and look at them from a completely different perspective, which I absolutely love. So yeah, fundament this could be fundament fundamentals still still holding up. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. <laughs> I, I tell you, that's, yep. that's, that's a good way to test something. Throw some spears at it and, um, and see if it still yep. float, floats. <laughs> that's deadly. Well, before we yeah, get into I mean, that, just, let's, um, sure. let's, let's just, uh, I just, I wanted to, this is just me nerding out, you know, um, but what's your favorite shield formation? Like from the old, old days, like before muskets and that shield, shield formation. Shield formation. Like obviously, I don't, know, I don't even know what shield formations are. Not a fan of the phalanx, you know, you know like the Viking shield wall or the. Um, oh right, right. You know the, the horns or the the bloody, you know arrowhead one, the wedge or like uh, you know all those ones. Um, the, so the, the rose with the testudo, the 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 tortoise. Anyway, have you ever read any Wilbur Smith? Uh I regret to inform you that I read everything that he wrote up until about the nineties. Uh, when i was a kid yeah yeah so did i <laughs> <laughs> that was very appealing ones. to a, like a young fellow with with you know yeah. young and young and dumb and full of uh full of himself you know yeah yeah i i like the story in there with the um the way the zulus have the bullhorns you know they they draw in oh, they, they draw in the horns the, too yeah mm. yeah they draw so i, I remember oh don't ask me which book it was, was that the sunbird I, I read them sorry was, it the, was that the sunbird I don't know. I, I can't remember, but it was, you know, they, they draw in, they, you know, they basically force on force and there's the martial arts aspect to this as well. Oh uh, yeah. Um, so I don't know if you've read um, uh, the art of learning by Josh Waitskin. Yeah, um, well, no, I've heard of it though. Yeah. So, so he talks about making smaller circles and, and what, what the Zulus did was provide force on force, mm. Which then, you know, as as um, Glenn was talking about when it, with the with the striking analogy, right? That that gets mm. them riled up and it gets them come wanting wanting to wanting to have a tear up, and then they draw back, and then the, the horns the horns of the um, bull close around, and it's the you know classic flanking right. maneuver. Yeah, but it doesn't so it's two, work. Two two wedges kind of like flanking them, but right in the middle of the big. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's a. You know, I, I, sort of tried to practice that in Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well it's like you 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 provide a bit of pressure and you know a good a good like rolling with a black belt they'll provide that pressure without you even realizing it there you'll be mm. pushing against that pressure without even realizing it mm. and then they'll take that support away and you'll fall over and you won't even fucking realize why or how well wow. it just happens and I think that's that's the uh that's what this kind of distributed command and this kind of intuition gives commanders in battle it gives you that well, battle whatever like what you know life mm. it gives you that sense of 
what the what the force mechanisms are and what what the structure is underneath that underneath what most people can sense does that make nice. sense yeah 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 that's beautiful i i do like the horns i i I'd, I'd forgotten about that though that that was potentially a zulu thing i don't know if he that was just wilbur smith projecting that on but i i have actually heard i've heard of that i don't know if it was just projected on <laughs> from other things yeah because i know nice. like i think i recall um Oh, was it the Persians using that or someone else? Anyway, but yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I so I, I've got another story. Before I was even in the Marines, I was in the um, well, like the, the cadets at university, and I went and did an exercise with them where I was, you know, playing enemy forces. And I remember being in this little farmhouse, you know, acting like a, acting as a as a you know, well, it's this late nineties, you know, so acting as some sort of Eastern European, you know, ragtag army, probably from Kosovo, something like that. And um, so just these guys were play. patrolling through. Sorry, just normal play. Hang on, where, where, yeah, where did yeah. you grow up? What's your what's your culture? Oh, I, so I grew up in um, Africa until I was Africa in the Caribbean until I was nine, and then back to okay. the UK. Back to the UK into what? So what's your accent there? Your UK accent? <sighs> it's, it's a bit model because it's not quite. I don't really have a UK accent. Like I I came back to the UK with a broad yeah, Jamaican accent, which got beaten out of me pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, imagine that. Oh. No, I was just trying yeah. to place it. And I was just trying to place it and just think, okay, so what? How, I'm just trying to imagine just the normal culture of somebody who plays, you know, Kosovans and bloody. <laughs> yeah, so they, I mean, they instead of cowboys and Indians, they're like, oh, well, I'd be Kosovo. You can be like, yeah. Yeah, like, so when, when they put these exercises on, they, they, you know, they get. You know, people who've who've come from those countries and they get them to sort of play out a, a scenario. Mm. So the scenario was, you know, a, a very kind of, you know, when when we intervened in Kosovo or the former Yugoslavia, it was that scenario. Right. But basically, I was I I and one other guy were playing enemy. We were in this house, and you know, a, a section of Marines were patrolling through, and we we fired at them. You know, blanks obviously, and um, you know, they they stayed there and they kept pinning us down and we were like you know we were fixated on where they were and then a minute or two later they'd somehow managed to drop into the dead ground and they came up and i looked to my right i just saw a flicker of something i looked to my right and there was eight guys with all cammed out about 20 meters away like ready to ready to advance and take the buildings like fuck me where did they come from and that's like exactly the same kind of principle right it's show force in one place but always be having an intention to circle around and, and attack from a place of weakness or a place of, of concealment. Yeah. And that's some art of war shit. Yeah. 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 Really interesting. But that happened at the tactical level, you know, there wouldn't have been a, um, you know, there wouldn't have been a big planning session for that. Mm. It would have been almost like a natural intuitive unit level almost like a hunting party right you don't necessarily have to be yeah. talking you've just done but it so the, many times with leadership being emergent yeah so that the the fellow or fellows that spotted that you know what i mean that yeah. opportunity yeah exactly yeah you know yeah. moved and then everybody jumped in behind yeah mm. see that's the hard thing you know in yes. the end, like in economics like in finance like in anything it, it, trust you know, the scope of that, that sphere of trust. 
it's absolutely all, all about trust yeah mm. so I, I give i give talks on on mission command and you know trust trust is the basis for building that intuition because you don't have trust you don't ever have that ability to build up that nonverbal communication and that kind of that that intuition it just doesn't come yeah um but yeah i mean that that, that would have been a very emergent you know it could have been the more experienced guy having having the overall kind of vis visibility of the terrain and knowing knowing where to go and he could have just sort of peeled off from the back and sort of said you know tap on the shoulder follow me follow me follow me mm. or it could have been you know the the junior guy who was closest to that dead ground spotting it and saying hey so um corporal or you know bob wouldn't have been corporal but you know dead ground to our left and then you know and then the lead the, the um mm. the leader putting his head up and saying oh yeah that'll do and then so yeah, it could have, it could have, I mean, I don't know, but it could have emerged from any yeah. one of those eight guys deciding. Well, that, that trust and transparency that's needed for that, you know, that can um, overcome the prisoner's dilemma kind of thing in, 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 in smallish groups. Um, yeah. But what do you think about that, the sort of Dunbar limit of, of that being not scalable beyond 150, 200 people? Um, I, I think there's, I think it, it can be, but only when you consider subunits, right? So I think that's it. You're never, you're, you're never going to get 150 people operating in lockstep, like a swarm of insects or something. That's just a mm, complete mm. nonsense. And any, any kind of modern management theory that like OKRs are, are supposed to, the, the way OKRs yep. are deployed are supposed to be like, oh yeah, get everyone aligned. Mm. That's bullshit. Right. You get, you get people aligned on a small team basis. So you know the sub the subdivisions of Dunbar's number, which mm. do conform very closely to military unit sizes. Mm -hmm. So you know, roughly eight to twelve, somewhere between sort of thirty and fifty, and yep. then up to the hundred and fifty Dunbar's number. That's it. Well, that, that's um, how the Roman century, yep, you know, operated. You know. And it's how it's how modern militaries operate as well. You've got that's a how section they made it work. Yeah, three three sections go into a troop or a platoon. Once you get up to that size, you have a small command element, and then you get three of those composing up into a company with a larger command element, and it's a very fractal mm. structure, and, and, and the structure breaks down at the subdivisions of Dunbar's number. It's really funny because you have that chain of command and there's that sense of top-down authority, but it's like that's what it is until you leave the ship or until you leave the base, where there's, there's something else going on there where you have... Um, from each even from each individual there's a certain amount of agency yeah like where where it starts flowing back the other way yep um do you, that, do you have a sense of that yeah oh absolutely yeah and i've been thinking about this quite a lot so there's there's a few kind of bits of research going on about um command and control yeah particularly this concept that they call edge command and control yeah and my personal opinion is that you don't need to have different types of command and control at different scales you just need context right because mm. any 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 structure that has command and control anybody in that structure has essentially volunteered to give up their control to the person in command right personal structure or people in command That's it. yeah so they, they voluntarily ceded control mm. to somebody else to command them because of that trust thing right so they're no longer capable of peak performance. Anyway, once, once you surrender your agency, is it possible? Well, I think, so I think this is kind of 
where you might have been going with Glenn, right? I think if, if you're doing that voluntarily and you're doing it for the good of a group and, the, and something outside of yourself, it's like, you know, you know, we think that cognition is embodied, but also ex expansive, right? So if you're giving up control to somebody that you trust to give you orders in return, then you kind of still have agency because you can always take back that, you know, you can always say, well, fuck it. I don't trust you anymore. You can't, you can't command me anymore. That's deadly. Well, see, that makes me think of a, um, a shield formation from our way. Uh, Cause mostly on the Australian mainland, you don't have your big uh, like Zulu shields or Viking shields or Spartan shields like that. You know, you don't have that full body cover. Yeah. You know, they're mostly smaller sort of parrying shields, you know, Right. Um, there's some uh, some full body shields like in rainforest up north and uh, down the Murray uh, Murray River there, you know, the lower Murray. There's there's you you get some of those, but mostly it's smaller parrying shields. Um, yeah, and that's I, I guess people consider that to be for one on one combat. But there was a shield formation for that that worked really well, um, and it was just like a single file. So it was you know one person facing yeah. the group that was throwing spears you know and as long as okay. there wasn't too much of a broad front everyone's in single file and just following that guy's move yeah so he's moving and everybody moves with them like a tail yeah <laughs> you know and as missiles come you know it's easy for the entire line just to parry off to the side and then it just slides yeah. down the side like that and as long as that front person, if they drop and roll, everybody drops and rolls behind him exactly as he's doing. Wow. Um, you know, but there is, I mean, how much trust does that take? And how much, yep. yeah. But there's kind of a group agency there that you have with that kind of, uh, yeah. That's only going to work <clears throat> if it's practiced and intuitive, right? Mm. If you're, you know, this, this, the two pathways that Glenn was talking about um, in Sistema where, you know, the, the type one and type two and you you basically are pushed into one or the other. Well, in that case, right, you're that intuitive. It's, all, it's almost an algorithm, right? Like yeah. I call my course Algorithms for Leadership because, nice. you know, the algorithm is a bit like the kind of flocking, you know, the artificial flocking algorithm they use in CGI, which has got like three rules, but yeah. it makes really, really lifelike... Um, uh, almost biological looking behavior. Mm. So well, it's not, the, it's the, the rules aren't for the entire group. The rules are for each individual. Very, yeah. what is it like match velocity, avoid collision, etc. Like yeah. that kind of basic thing. Yeah. Which, so and they're yeah, interestingly it, called voids. Voids. Sorry. Which is the, they're called voids, those things, which yeah. is the same, yeah, yeah. same as the name of the 76 author you were cited before. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. So I think, that's i mean there's also this kind of you know command comes with control right mm. so there's also agency in the degree to which the person or the people in command are giving you control back over how you do the thing right yeah yeah so you can you can have a group of people that seeds both command and control to the environment right they've got no internal structure they're just blown by the winds they don't have anybody in charge they just go where the environment tells them to go and and you know that usually that's a bad outcome 
Mm. Or you can have a group of people where both command and control are centralized and they tell you what to do and how to do it. And that's, you know, obviously there's, there's places where that's necessary, like, you know, handling nuclear waste in a power station, right? You don't mm. let people kind of figure out how they want to do it. It's all, it's all defined up front and, you know, thought about and all, all of that. But actually, most of us exist in a very gray zone where that locus of locus of command, sorry, locus of control and point of command are really fluid and they change all the time. Mm. Oh. I'm just processing. <laughs> sorry, there's no time for processing in dead air and these things, is there? But um no mm. process away i think i mean that's yeah. one of the reasons i wanted to say so that to you is it, to it is funny because with your it's, different um, perspective because you tend to like i tend to just throw all command and control into one one bucket i don't have any room for nuance there mm. you know what i mean i'm just yeah, going, yeah no that's that that's that evil bucket there but um yeah it seems that there, there are um there are different species of command and control going on too eh? Mm. I mean, the, the risk is obviously, you know, as, as was made really clear in your, in your book, that the risk is that, that that command and control structure in the first place is really open to the sociopath being the one in command who then takes all the control as well. And then it's, you know, yeah. And then it's suboptimal for everybody, including, including him. And it's usually him. It is tricky when you have systems that are vulnerable to bad actors. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. There's that kind of neoliberal. I, see, a lot of this stuff come through in the 90s too. You know, I remember all the leadership courses. Um, um, they were full on. I was doing a mastership in a master's uh, in, in, in that leadership. And, and just yeah. I remember all the conferences and, and the endless kind of, you know, uh, you know, there, there was always a, a little gimmick or something that would go with it. Yeah. But always in the end, the, the big catch cry. I mean, because I guess it was the that was the economic rationalism sort of time. Do you remember yeah. that that big purge? And uh, everything was positive psychology. Uh -huh. You know, uh, the power of positive thinking, like that cult was was starting. That was started by uh, who that was invented by Donald Trump's pastor. Uh, what's his name? I can't remember now. Um, Not really? <laughs> but that went through all psychology. So everybody was learning. Like you're either learning rational emotive or you were learning um, choice theory. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I actually did all the training in choice theory as well. So the 90s were weird because it was that economic rationalism and there were a whole heap of different leadership and management styles coming out. Remember management styles and leadership styles? Remember that crap? Yeah, <laughs> yeah to do all the theory. And then there was like, um, oh, man, I don't know. It just, um, I, I just remember there was that focus on accountability, that idea of who yeah. is the, like all of the, all of the little exercises you had to do in your teams, who is the accountable officer? Yep. You know, who is the one who's going to be, you know, and the idea is it's like your leader is the one who's going to be accountable. Um, and it, it pissed everybody off because everybody in the room knew that the principal was not accountable for the school, that the CEO was not accountable. You know what I mean? The CEO yep. was not going to have to pay back the pension fund when yep. it got raided to try and cover their bloody, um, 
you know, whatever they were pissing around with on the stock market, where they're buying back their own shares to try and make, make it look like there was some growth in a quarter that wasn't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if they're trying to short somebody and then they fuck it up and have to pay the bill, they're not accountable. They will probably get a bonus and then leave and go and do it somewhere else. So there were all yep. these gammon leadership courses that were like, no, if you're on the team, you must follow the instructions of the accountable officer because they're accountable and you're not. And I'm like, no, we're the ones that are going to get. Yeah. <laughs> yes, in this exercise, which always seemed to involve fucking paper clips and 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 fucking <laughs> rubber bands. <laughs> you know what I mean? You always had to build some crappy thing. Um, yeah. Or, or, and, I don't know, and, you know, lift everybody through a freaking tire that was three meters off the ground or some crap like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to, I want to throw something out there, which is, I think the heart of what I see is the problem with leadership and management training mm. is that it's all couched in terms of individual skill, right? Your skill as a leader, your, your, yeah. you know, how good are you as an individual leader? And actually leadership's a team sport, like the, the, as as at least as important as the skills of the individual leader and probably probably more so but only once you're off the boat leadership Hmm? only once you're only once you're off the boat (laughs) yeah but but you know the the system the system within which those skills are deployed is at least as important yeah that's it because you could take the most empathetic amazing you know leader who's who's had considerable success in one context and you could put them into a shitty company with a bad culture Mm. and they'd be nowhere right they, they would be you know probably less effective than somebody who was able to deal with the deficiencies of that culture that that they're familiar with so the idea of leadership as some sort of objective set of skills is just nonsense yeah the idea of almost any training which is about transferring you know a um like you say an objective empirical like contextless you know (laughs) set of skills it's like no 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 i mean that's not what it is what you're somehow doing is building capacity you know to adaptively use these things across different contexts um that's the trick though isn't it yeah and that i mean that's that's the i think the the reason that things like kinefin and and sand talk are so important is because it gives you a different lens beyond that kind of measurable deconstructionist kind of Western scientific management theory lens, which is completely deficient. They both, they both grounded in narrative as a unit of, um, as, as something that is your way of transmitting the knowledge. So even in Kinevin, you know, they have the micro narratives and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Etc. Etc. It's it's a it's a way of somehow um, quantifying narrative, Kinevin, and that that's what really made me excited. Uh, when yeah, sense maker, sense maker that they yeah. used to. But what's build a model? Where, where's the narrative for you in your command commando style stuff? Is it in those foundations? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. So the the foundational principles for me are the OODA loop, which is another one of John Boyd's things situational mm-hmm. awareness and mission command right and those are the kind of mental abstractions that you know if you keep digging into all this military stuff and and look at successful companies those are you know, 
they'll probably change because they're you know they're abstractions they're they're not um anything concrete but those to me are the things that explain the phenomena that i observe the best so they're almost like archetypal sort of mindsets um so what do you do you kind of slip into them more that's like how so, do they feel mm. to you if they're things that change but they don't I mean, they change that with context but the that's abstract really interesting the abstract interesting is just question. a name but but what is it that you're inhabiting that's what i was um interested in yeah that is a really i haven't ever looked at it through that lens so give me a second so okay Let, let's take the ooda loop right okay the ooda loop is this this concept that you know we've we've been poking around it's a thing that boyd came up with you know towards the end of his life when when people were continually pushing him to well explain this thing what is it like give us a thing mm. and you know boyd's thing was a six-hour briefing of you know a recapitulation of all of history and mi military theory and science and you know this was a, a like narrative. david ike did like a david <laughs> ike sem seminar yeah yeah, I mean, he, he, he would literally go and talk to generals for like six hours, like a whole day of, of basically blowing people's minds. And yet this all got compressed into this single diagram called the, and, and, you know, and he called it the Uda cycle and it you know, had a few different names over its life, but it ended up as the Uda cycle. And then it got simplified even further into this kind of round, you know, arrow, you know, like a cycle of observe, orient, decide, act in steps. And it's almost like labeling it has made it much harder to you have to strip away all of that kind of sub, sub um well it's a protocol level sorry it's a protocol almost uh, it's a, it's more of a process than a um it, it is it is a process but it's like it a, sounds like a, a, a there's a praxis there it's it's not just an abstraction it's it's a verb as much as anything else yeah, I mean, this is this is difficult because, you know, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the YouTube videos yet, but, you know, there's there's a bunch of us who, you know, are pretty familiar with Boyd's work. And we've been mm. digging into like the, the whatever Uda is and we're, you know, what, four hours into conversation now and we're certainly not converging on any definition or any kind of. What are, what are um, the stages in the process in the loop? Observe, orient, decide, act. Observe, orient, decide, act. See, that sounds also like the um, action research loop or action research spiral. I think they they stole that. <laughs> no, they they. I mean, so it's a methodology that I, I I have seen that. Uh, I've seen that in uh, action learning is another bloody it's another leadership model I've seen. Yeah, PD, PDCA is another one that's uses that, very similar. They didn't reference him though, which annoys so, me. So here's, here's how I, I explain it. the UDA loop now. Mm. Right, you've got you've got a system that has a boundary, mm. you know, uh, at some some kind of entity. Observe and orient is how information comes into that system, right? It's you you sensing mm. your environment. But that sensing is entangled with your existing preconceptions and your existing mental models, mm -hmm. right? That observation causes your mental models to fall out of sync with the external environment somehow. Mm -hmm. 
which makes you want to put them back in sync, right? This is Friston's free energy right. theory, yeah. right? It makes you want It makes you want to have that match up. And you can either do that in two ways. One, you can change your mental model or you can take an action to change the environment so that it matches, so it comes back into matching. Oh, that, that, that uh, seldom works. <laughs> but it, it's a, it's, it doesn't work in one go but you're yeah. continually doing that. Like even, you know, even cognition, right? If, um, if you were to hold something like I've got a pen here, if I'm to hold yeah. that in my fingers, right? if, if someone just put that into my hands and I had my eyes closed and someone put a pen into my hand and I, and I basically had to sit there and sit still, mm. I wouldn't know what it was, right? I would, the only way I would be able to detect what that was is to move my hands and take an action. And get more information. To, from to get action. more information. Yeah, yeah. okay. So that cognition has to start with action. Well, observing observing itself is an action, because exactly, yeah. From physics, so, it's so an it's intervention a in the system immediately. Well, that's I mean, yeah. so from an indigenous point of view, which you'd know this from Santorf anyway, is that um, that you're never observing a system, that that you're part part of a system that's observing itself. Yes, you know. <laughs> Like it's a dynamic self-organizing system. It's observing itself. Yeah. And, and you're part of that apparatus in that moment. Um, that's about as close as you can get. It's a tricky yeah. thing, though, to try and fool yourself into thinking that you're just observing and, and not yes. impact, impacting. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, every, every action you take <clears throat> sets an expectation. Right. So your expectation then shapes your observation. So you're never you're never objectively observing anything. You just, it. It's impossible. Well, but then also, I mean, really, if you are immersed in the observation, then that should be enough to change uh, your expectations as well. If you're really learning from that environment, then nine times out of 10, just the act of observing should resolve the dissonance that you're feeling from your expected picture, you know, your expected outcome and then what is should be able to arrive at some level of acceptance <laughs> and then be able to act within the system, um, you know, without that sort of pain of wanting to resolve your cognitive dissonance. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's I think that step. Kristen's work's really interesting on this. Yeah. So, so that step you're, you're observing. Um, hang on. Was the first one observing? There was another one before that. No, first one's observing. First one's I mean, observing. there isn't really a first. It's a, it's a yeah, dynamic. Yeah, they join cycle. together. Yeah, yeah, they keep yeah. going around. It's a cycle. Okay. Yeah. But that's the first one we're looking at in the cycle, that observation. And then next one is which way? Or orientation. Orientation. Mm. But even separating those two, you know, you come to realize that yeah. they're one and the same, right? Yeah, how you introduced it was that. Yeah. So this, so this is the kind of problem with with Uda as a as a concept that it's, you know, it's such a deep, um, difficult, and, and you know, continually kind of evolving, not, not evolving, but your understanding of it continually evolves as you come up with more more ways of thinking about it, mm. and yet it's mostly explained in a very simplistic way, which is you know, it's better than nothing, right? I've mm. seen I've seen an explanation which is the the round circle that a cop's doing to uh, it's on YouTube. Um, yeah. A cop's doing to his colleague and, and none of what the guy's saying is wrong. 
and it's very useful to, for the guy he's talking to because it's explaining the phenomena of dealing with a dealing with a suspect in in a useful graspable way for that guy mm. but it's incomplete and it always will be because awesome. there's always further you know you read something like sam talking you're like, oh actually there's a lot of different stuff about you know a lot of levels levels to this spooder thing that i didn't really get um and then you read about you know friston's free energy theory and you're like oh that sounds mm. seems a bit ooderish as well and then you know there's, there's always does it ever stop i mean i think when you start to get comfortable with your models you know you're in trouble yeah yeah that's when you start, better start looking behind you <laughs> yeah yeah quite yeah somebody, somebody's still moving gonna come up and yeah you'll be uh going to take you out take your spot so we've got so you're observing and it's the orientation and then uh what's the other two decision and action decision and action oh walk, walk me through with the um that famous moment at, at gettysburg you familiar with that uh go on remind me you know the fixed bayonets moment Oh. I, I know a bit. I, I know a little bit of Gettysburg, but not not. Um, all right, all right, great right, deal. All right, so well, oh, this uh, is the, the. You mean the pivotal moment when the battle changed? Yeah, yeah. They were yeah. out of ammo. They're on the hill, and they're getting overrun. But it's forested, right? Yep. So he said, "Fix bayonets," and they kind of. And he just decided. I don't know. See, how did he arrive at that decision? This this is the thing. I'm working through and, and trying. So what's he? So he's what's he observing? He's observing. Okay, this is you know woodland we have the high ground we have no ammunition we're outnumbered like a hundred to one and they're coming up the hill at us firing and we're out of lead we've got nothing and uh so he's looking that's what that's what he's observing and then i guess he's orienting himself into what because it's it's everything he's bringing to it. It's all his knowledge. So he was a yep. university professor, and like in history or something. What's yeah, he was, drawing yeah, was... on there? Somehow he's looking at the whole thing, and decides that there is some kind of physics in a line of men that are maintaining through trees. They're going to be able to maintain like a door swinging open, action, so that the ones on this end are moving slowly, mm. but the others are sprinting. And that somehow they can maintain that, but the physics of that will sweep, sweep that clear. And if they fix bayonets and go for it like that, like he not see he's he's come to decision then, because he hasn't got long, has he? Like yeah. he's got moments to somehow describe that action to everybody, get them on board, and in, instead of having them run away, to commit to that action. Yeah. How the hell? And then they act. But yeah, and he's there, he's in the line, but it's no longer his unique, amazing leadership. Then that's something that everybody's had to commit, commit to. But there's yep. that idea of that, that inspiring moment of that there's something in how he says, like, fix bayonets, like, you know, yeah. Sparta kind of thing that, that gets people in that 300 headspace, you know. Um, yeah. Makes but, I mean, they, this is it. just one moment. And they carried the day, like, with no bullets. Yeah. But I mean, it's just one moment in time, right? It could have been, it you know, and and we we're very much looking at this literally through the lens of survivorship bias, right? It very well could have been that he right. took, took a completely wrong decision and he was just lucky. <laughs> That's it. But on the other hand, right, he he did have all of this kind of diversity of background and diversity of 
of thought and experience and you know he may have intuited some structural weakness and some like for example the enemy is now advancing they're massively overwhelmed they they might the enemy might know or might not know that they're out of bullets mm. the enemy's thinking that they're one right because they're they're mm. stuck they're um so the, so the enemy is already uh, all the you know the people advancing are already in the mindset of of winners mm. So one one thing that Boyd talks about a lot is is this idea of fast transience. It's not about getting through the OODA loop quickly. It's about producing wildly um, wildly surprising um, observations for the enemy. So if you if you see yourself in the mindset of somebody advancing up the hill, right? It's like okay, right. This is a mopping up operation, boys. We just need to go and you know root these guys out. They're out of ammo. They're right. fucked. They're they're all knackered. And then all of a sudden you see a bunch of crazy people with bayonets fixed charging down the hill. And now your mindset is, is completely disrupted, right? Your, your, ob- your orientation is smashed. That's it. And that is the opportunity. He knew that. He knew the psychology of that. Possibly. He was like history, literature, that was his thing. So, I mean. So he's probably studied. There's the Waterloo moment. Like that, there's right? the Waterloo moment. And, and there are a lot of similarities. They're on a hill. They yep. got the scum like he like they gave him like they were giving him all the scumbags. Yeah. And and he 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 had incredible loyalty with them because he, you know, immediately just went, look, there's no judgment here. You don't have a criminal record here. You know, yep. you've been kick, kicked out everywhere else because you were thieving and raping or whatever. But here you are, you're a new man now. This is your new start. You know, we're not we're probably not going to survive this, but if we do. You'll be holding your head up, you know that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he had well. his fine, he had his foundations there. Yeah. So there was that thinking process. What are the other foundations? We'll just see if he's got them. Well, you you so I mean, I quite like thinking about how how, how what are the ways in which that could have gone wrong, right? Because there are probably oh hell yeah many more versions of history where that would have just been, well, it would never be any history. Books, it would have they just been away. another skirmish. Yeah, exactly. Um, there is, we do like to reward high risk behavior though, don't we? In history, in, you know, handing out medals. Yeah. And well, and coming up with explanations as well, right? We, we love to have simple, simple heroic explanations that the victors can write down yeah now and we, this... we love we love to think that there was some you know inherently right or wrong point at which to take action there mm. so the the your principles your abstractions you know your foundations so good those good principles must be fundamental composable and complementary yeah that's what i'm looking at there what do you so, mean by compo- yeah, so, compo- what is composable? So from my background in, in technology led me down a kind of little, little bit of a weird academic route called functional programming. Right. Um, functional programming is sort of a lot more close to maths and, and sort of fundamental science than, than sort of in other styles of programming. Mm. So composition is a, is a, very big subject but essentially it's where you take if you have a function that takes um takes an input produces an output 
you have type A on the input and type B on the output. If you then have a function that takes a B to a C, composition is the art of is, is the, the result of combining those two functions together. So you get something that goes from A to C. Right. Mm. So composition with when it comes to principles means that they have to work together and they have to go from small to big. So this is Musashi's um, from one thing, no 10,000 things. Right. And this is, this is not a dialectic. Like just two things combining and making a, a sexy third thing. No, it's, no, it's there's, a, there's a it's whole not at all. There's of, a yeah. There's there's a whole branch of um, very very crazy mathematics called category theory that determines how all this shit works. And it's I mean it's yeah, like yeah. category theory has been applied to everything from physics to to networks to everything. Right. So com composition is really about like in category theory and i'm not going to explain this well because i'm by no means a mathematician. it's like making a quantum leap from a to c yeah you could you, you're, you're essentially hiding all of that complexity of of going from a to c because you know this is a very simple example but you've got much much bigger things that compose as well mm. um, i'm just trying to think of a good example um So, okay, so a good example would be, um, let's say you're doing analytics on a, on a stream of data. Mm. Let's say you're observing your environment, right? And you're, 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 if it's a computer program, you, you've got some means of observing this stream of events and coming up, coming up with a state. Like what, is, what, is, what does everything that's happened mean to right. my system? So with composition, you can have a function that does one element of that, like, I don't know, what's how many events have we seen? What's the count of events? You can have another one that sums up an element of those events. And you right. can have another one that's like the product of, of another, another element of those events. Hmm. And, you know, you need to do this in real time as the stream's coming through. So com composition means that you can take all of those three computations. Right. And you can have a state that is comprised of the outcome of all three without changing the actual computation. Right. Mm. And that, that's another example of like the, the power of thinking mm. of, of composition. Yeah. Well, hence why you need um, distributed leadership models in some way, because there's no way for one brain, no matter how bloody amazing general pattern you are, you're not going to uh, be able to compute all that yourself in the moment. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you'd be better be acting with one large distributed mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the interesting question becomes there is like if if you've got multiple minds doing that computation and having their outputs, what does that flow into in a distributed context, right? Because we have to be we have to be holding in order to have a shared understanding, we have to be holding some model, you know, your frames of reference you were talking about with Glenn. Mm. We've all got our own ones, like, you know, I'm looking at my desk and I've got a mug over there and I've got a pen here and I know when I pick this one up, it's going to be light and I pick this one up, I need to not spill my tea. But where, where, does, the, where does that understanding live when the cognition is distributed across a whole bunch of people and time? 
Mm. That's that's what's really interesting to me. It's like yeah. I'm, I'm convinced that there's something intangible there, but I've got no idea what the medium or the substrate is. That's it. But I mean, does it have to be there? I mean, physicists are happy enough to know that entanglement is a thing without knowing how the hell it happens. How is that communication mm. happening? Like completely so, ignoring actually, time, space, everything else. You know, they still know it happens. So I guess, um, I don't know, but I, I guess, you know, when it's happening, you know, here with us in a way that would lead people to um, imagine some kind of spirit or some kind of mind that is not purely biological, um, that's when it starts to be a problem. <laughs> You know, for the whole sort of uh, enlightenment project, almost. You know, yeah, yeah. I read um, I read a fantastic book um, about well, it's about quantum physics, but it was really more of a philosophy book. It's called um, Helgoland by Carlo Rovelli. Understood. Uh, it's it's amazing, um, but yeah, essentially, he his take on this is that 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 entanglement is explained by relation. Yeah. So. You only know the outcome of both of those things. If you're if you're an if you're two observers observing an entangled phenomena, the the relation or the, the the change in that phenomena only becomes apparent when there's a third observer observing the other two. Right. Um, oh. uh, yeah, I'm I'm not yeah. going to do that justice because he he's been thinking yeah, yeah. about this a lot longer than I have. But it's a brilliant book. Nice. Well, look, I don't, uh, I don't kind of read like I used to, you know, <laughs> um, I find that like, for example, I'm not, um, I, I haven't read your stuff on situational awareness. Yes. Why would I, I'm going to call you up and I'm going to ask you about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm finding there is, um, a, a sort of a growing acceptance of that kind of orality now to the point that I've, I've, I've almost stopped reading uh, in the last few months, not consciously, but I just kind of noticed this today. I was talking to a colleague and went, geez, it's been a while since I read anything. Mm. I've had that tab open, the Boyd article for six yeah. months, the, that, that one that you sent me six months ago. And I've read that first page about half a dozen times, but I haven't finished it. Um, but I have yeah. talked to a few people about it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. And I can yeah. listen to a podcast with, I mean, not with him. He's probably dead by now. I don't know. Um, he is, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But, you know, so if, if, if they're not dead, then I can listen to them talking to smarter people than me about it. Or I can try, like, send them an email. Or if I have a friend, like, oh, you know this fellow, like, intro me, intro me. You know? Um, yeah. You know, so Glenn, I, I... Glenn says, you know, Ben here's Tyson, Tyson, here's Ben, then I don't have to read about situational awareness. I can just uh, say to you, hey, what is it? And then off we yeah. go. And uh, I'm, the I'm finding that as well, like, you know, moving into wanting to educate people about this, I'm, I find myself quite resistant to, you know, writing something down or recording a video because then it's kind of static, right? And actually I find... I find this back and forward interplay and exploration much more mm. a engaging, but b um, educational. I guess is yeah. Like, you know, if, you know, I I, I still read, um, get distracted with social media a lot, but actually, you know, I find myself reading a book now, 
and I'll tweet out like an, an interesting passage in the book because I want to, to, to kick off a bit of conversation about it while I'm reading it. Mm. Very different than just sort of sitting down and absorbing a book. I'm, I'm always looking for how I can relate what I read with other stuff that I've read or conversations that I've had. And that's like, difficult to um, difficult to do when you're just reading something, isn't it? Well, it was yesterday I saw like I saw uh, this paper came across my, you know, my inbox um, on how there is a new orality that's replacing literacy in the Interesting. sort of Western educated industrialized rich democratic world. Um, Did you read it? Which is really no, I didn't. <laughs> I, I, I contacted the fellow who posted it. Oh, yeah, who also happens to know the author. And I asked him about it and said, hey, I don't think this is true, but oh, actually, it probably is if I'm calling you about it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's the thing, though. Like, you know, if we're in this exponentially increasing pace of change, that to me, suggests that we have to have some kind of exponentially increasing pace of knowledge compression or transmission, which means that one-to-one -one kind of conversation like this as a means of transmitting understanding and ideas is antithetical to that, right? We, we have to find some way of keeping pace because, you know, the conversation that you and I are having now, you know, if it goes on a podcast and a few people listen to it, great. Mm. But, you know, we're, we're basically limiting that to the people that will engage with it enough to listen yeah but see I, that's only a problem if you're looking at if you're looking through that individualized lens of the world as, yeah. as one one person accruing knowledge as an individual that will increase their knowledge sort of capital or their you know what i mean yeah. their expertise yeah, yeah, or yeah. skills that can then be you know transformed to the next tier of capital you know um if you're not looking at it like that and if you're not looking at it as my mind holds this knowledge or is acquiring this knowledge or his mind is if instead this is this knowledge that we're building together now which is i mean you know linking gettysburg to waterloo because there's a hill and really scummy soldiers left at the end with not much ammunition <laughs> You know, I don't know if anyone's ever done that before, but you know what? Where, is it, where does that knowledge sit? Because it didn't come out of my head. Yeah. As neat as that looked, I didn't prepackage that or decide that before the interview. It didn't come out of my head. Didn't certainly didn't come out of your head either. Yeah. But so, you know, but it doesn't matter where it came from. You know, so whose IPR is it, et cetera, et cetera. Where does it sit? It basically sits in our relational connection. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, so we're a pair. And there's a um, there's a space between us which is mind, and that's our space, and that only belongs to us. Mm -hmm. And we only have one obligation to it. And there's that one protocol is to respect it and beautify it. Um, you know, beautify it. That was that was the way Samoan put it to me. The, mm. the, the, their word for that concept is va, for that for that relational mind. You know, and it's about a brotherhood kind of thing, a siblinghood. And yeah. you, you have that obligation to beautify and complexify that space. And there's that, um, well, you know, that uh, theory of the adjacent possible. Mm -hmm. Yep. Across that one, you know, so that kind of, you know, how many combinatorials are there, you know, within that space? And it's almost infinite, you know, and we yeah. can pretty much, we could, um, you know, if we were locked in 
you know, locked in some really shitty cell somewhere for the next 20 years, there's, um, there are universes to explore in that space. Yeah. There. Once we decided yeah. who, who was going to be on top. So. I guess the, hey. the thing is like when you've got the, um, you've got those universes to explore, like does, does there need to be a common substrate so that, you know, people that you and I, you know, so you and I will walk away from this conversation and we'll share some of the things and some of the new concepts and some of the mental models and, you know, some of the stuff that's been moved around in here with other people. Mm. And they will as well. Yeah. And I'm just wondering like where, where you think that's a kind of expansive emergent property but how do you build a loop back to like a feedback loop back to those concepts mm. oh well that's the same way that you your relational pairs work in an ecosystem um which is reflected in a totemic system you know as well so you your networks of your perfect dunbar of 150 people etc mm -hmm. you know that's a whole heap of kinship pairs you know that are sitting within other structures um like for marriage law and everything else and there are avoidance relations in there. There are all kinds of things, but it's very much um, re reflective of a, an ecosystem, you know, that the totemic sort of pairs that are formed there. Um, you know, the relationship between a, a crayfish and an ant, you know, for example, mm -hmm. um, how they operate, uh, the roles they perform on land and in water for uh, responding to and producing scent signals, for example, and all these sorts of things dealing with carry and that, that entire sort of system. Uh, yeah. and how they're complementary with each other but then they're they they're adjacent to other pairs that also sort of pair with them and so you end yeah. up with these you know you describe that sort of fractalized uh relation of, of, yeah. pa of power and decision making and autonomy and sovereignty basically in the uh -huh. military structure starting from the single soldier you know but going up through those increasingly larger groups of influence yeah. uh, mm -hmm. so to have those units you know uh, that end up being like autonomous collectives that are then bound in relation to other autonomous collectives, becoming autonomous collectives of autonomous collectives. And right yeah. there in describing that, you're describing the governance model of um, Australia up until uh, 200 years ago, mm. you know, uh, very much. But it comes, it comes from the bottom and, um, you know, enforces that, um, you know, that autonomy. Uh, it demands it because it's situated within the law of the land and yeah. that the land carries that law, then, um, then it's immutable. It's kind of like blockchained into the landscape. You know, there's a permanent ledger. <laughs> there, no, no, I, I, I know, absolutely with every, every rock that carrying that story of every, you know, law, etc. So yeah, that's how that goes. Um, how do we get there? I'm so glad we I did got, go there. When I got into governance, I got lost, but we were, we were going somewhere with the... Oh, it was no, that relational space, but that's how it yeah. that works. And that's how yeah. it's scalable. It's scalable in the same fractal, fractal way, uh, that fractal that, that you're perceiving, you know, in, in that kind of, you know, how that autonomy works on the ground in emergent mm. kind of contexts you know, in, in a kind of a special forces situation, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. You can see, you can see the emergent properties of that. And these are relational things and they do scale because they scale beyond, 
you know, you'll have that fellow there in your unit who he's your brother who's got your back, you know, above and beyond everyone else. And everybody's yeah. got that. But then at the same time, you're all brothers as well. And so, you know, they all just fit together in that way. And somehow those yeah. flows, and I think there's something about the long marches, the long, you know, heavy packs through the mud, 20K run. You know what I mean? Shared, shared, and, shared suffering. And that, yeah. But that sort of, but always repetitive, there's this kind of repetitive movement, uh, peak state, like alpha wave kind of a thing where if you're sharing that, then there's that one mind that emerges there. Somehow, yeah. somehow it captures that uh, that biological patterning, that that patterning um, that we have of forming that one mind, and it might have something to do with that um, uh, where you see yourself. So, you know that if if I start personality mirroring here now, and so yeah. I'm talking to you, and I start just copying the little things that you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's even yep. if you know that's what I'm doing and you think it's a bit cheeky, it doesn't matter. You're starting to smile because it's like you have that feeling yeah. and, and it's starting to make me feel good because I see you doing the same thing I'm doing. Even though I initiated it, we get that feedback loop in between us of that we're both recognizing some, somebody that's doing something similar to us. Well, I like this person. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'll, I'll do well here. And but so, but there's something about doing that in a large group, like for example, for ceremony, and here's where we get the training for it, you know, as human beings, it's in ceremony, um, you know, where everyone's clapping along, you know, yeah. everybody's doing the same clap. Like suddenly that's that's like ice all of a sudden that's multiplied. There's big do dopamine hit where you're getting yeah. that from a thousand people at once, not a thousand people, but you know, dozens or hundreds of people all at once. We're all doing exactly the same thing as you and takes you into that state, I guess. There's something in yeah. that alpha wave state of, um, you know, having that feedback loop reinforced of communication between you and another person, but then even bigger if it's lots of people together, it puts you in that yeah. one mind space and you do so have I, access I to, to more you, computational um, power as one collective mind, um, I guess. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you remember this part of your episode with jim one of your episodes with jim rock when jim was talking about the hunting party <laughs> the mammoth no he was he was talking about a, a, bunch of, a bunch of guys a bunch of friends that go hunting and they all have oh he was talking about his, his deer hunting party okay yeah 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 right, yeah. yeah and that that's the that's that that's that was fascinating because it was that was the kind of prose well it's not really quite the same but you know the military process of having a debrief after an operation right you've yeah. just been through some shit together yeah man. um it may have gone bad well may have gone badly mm. um but you sit there and you process it yeah and and the thing that the thing that was really really interesting to me was these emergent roles that yes people took within that group which when that group goes when that group this dissipates and goes back to its kind of you know day job doesn't exist until those guys get back together and they sit around that campfire again that's it and one of them was a storyteller yeah and and one of them was more spatial he had the map yeah internalized map you know yeah and one of them was like the intelligence was, expert who knew where right. all the animals go that's yeah. it that's it the behavioral guy the, yeah. the pattern yeah 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 and they all had that mm. 
they they all had some particular skill that sort of married together to make one um yeah one unit and it was the dynamics the dynamics of how those things interacted over time that led to the group cognition that was vastly different than each of those guys on their own or if they had a plan or if that's it well it's pretty much that the a-team yeah you grow up with uh, the Abarakis, but I certainly did. But um, yeah, the eighteen. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, so uh, hmm. your ensemble, your classic ensemble. Yeah. And that that is the thing that. Okay, so let's 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 extrapolate that out. Let's say that that these guys had a team of. You know they had. I don't know, hunting party, hunting party of six. Let's say there's six of those. Mm. And let's say that they somehow come together, right? I don't know. They have a weekend, a weekend a month where they, they hunt in a bigger group or something. Mm. What does the composition of that look like? And that, here's, here's composition, right? You've got, these, you've got these groups and then you compose them together and they somewhat somewhat overlap and somewhat inter, interlock and mm. you know each of those individuals within those groups will have relationships across the groups mm. what does that distributed cognition look like once you've got groups of groups mm. that's it but I, I think it follows the same pattern like i said it's fractal yeah like as long as your group feels itself to be an auto, uh, an autonomous entity you know, yes, it's a collective, but it's an autonomous entity. And mm. once it feels itself in relation, in a non-sort of competitive dynamic yeah. with, with the others, uh, I mean, if, if it can operate with five other groups in the same way that it's operating within its own team, then you've got a fractal dynamic that can scale. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing people keep, keep, people keep asking, you know, how does it scale? How does it scale? How does it scale? I mean, it does like that. And I was uh, doing this with a uh, financial services firm and, and I couldn't explain it properly. So I said, well, hang on. So I look outside and I go, well, um, I can see that. I can see this place down here. I can see where the water would be flowing. I know there's no creek down there at the moment, but um, you know, that's where there would be one if, that, if it wasn't all messed up up that end. Uh, so I can see that the land's sick here and that's the way the water would go. I can see the the... The soil is disturbed there. So I'll bet that down towards where that water would be going if it rained right now, I'll bet there's some bracken there. I'll bet you 10 bucks there's bracken there. Um, and so I ran out, ran down the hill in the middle of this presentation. <laughs> <laughs> Weird, like fellow running down the hill. And yeah, and, certain, and sure as hell, there was, there was bracken there because that's what the country does, you know. Yeah. Uh, that bracken fixes the nitrogen and starts the process of healing that uh, soil there. So I brought the bracken leaf back up and I showed them the fractal, the fractal and the fern leaf. And as soon as they, they could see the image of that, it's funny, there's something about you need, you need that visual, you need that metaphor. Mm. That's what you're talking about as abstractions, you know, yep. in, soft, in software that you're talking, that you're calling foundations, in leadership model. Those foundations are, they're more than abstracts. They're, they're metaphors for other things. Uh-huh. you know what i mean and the patterns that you've described to me and the logics you've described to me they're all they're all metaphors for some other unnameable something 
you know, and yeah. the way you've gone through them is kind of narrativized as well. So there's story there, you know. And I think whenever you get down to the foundations of something, there is there is that dreaming kind of mind of of, of that um, working with metaphors that have integrity. And I think that that's what's at the base of of anything good. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. we, we're nearly out of time, but I wanted to. I did have I had one plan coming into this, and it was mm-hmm. to throw this thing at you that's been on my mind. Um, because you, I mean, late 90s, one of the other bloody things that we all you probably did it too. Uh, <laughs> trainings you did was um, lateral thinking. Did you ever, or you had the Edward de Bono stuff thrown at you? You never had the de Bono, like people pass you the lateral thinking book, or you had to go and do a class in it, or a something or other i would have done something similar like similar in like military kind of um yeah you get yeah i i, I think he, I know does, what you mean. Yeah. he does that lateral thinking but but it's um and and yeah works but only if you have foundations in place which um you know often he doesn't yeah so it, it works with groups where he goes to the group and they have their foundations and then he he throws them out into this kind of crazy thinking where where they you know arrive at solutions in non nonlinear ways, unexpected solutions, disruptive innovations, etc. Yeah. Um so it's yeah, that's De Bono's stuff. But I'm just I'm just gonna find a, a quote from something I read last night. Oh no. I had an example of his lateral thinking. Yeah, go on. What I think is a really good example of um, of applying something that works, but in the wrong context and where you have no foundation and where you don't have clear foundations. In the way that you've described these foundations to me, uh, and in the way with the, the bit of reading I did first, you know, through your website and your work, and just mm-hmm. what I've understood um, about you over the last few months, and um, yeah, so I was thinking to apply that, and. Uh, what it was was when he was he was asked to apply his lateral thinking techniques to um, solve Middle East conflict. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, how how would you get peace in the Middle East? And so he came in with a bad foundation of mm-hmm. an, an analysis and a set of core assumptions about what the problem was in yeah. the Middle East, which you know. Um, clearly led him to the conclusion that well a the arabs are the problem and b um arab aggression is the is the arabs problem so that it, it therefore how do i solve arab aggression <laughs> then i'll bring peace to the middle east <laughs> so straight away even though he's applying a really good thinking model it's yeah. not going to produce anything good and yeah. what he came up with it's a really good anecdote to use i i think i reckon you want to use it but what he came up with was vegemite <laughs> he had this ra- random fact he found that that aggression uh it, the vitamin b deficiency causes aggression and so all right well what gives you vitamin d what's the highest vitamin d uh vitamin b food oh, oh it's it's vegemite all right we need to send vegemite to the the middle east that that, <laughs> that will bring peace to the middle east that was his and that okay, one that was on the front page of every newspaper it's like not even a not not two state solution not one state solution but one crate of vegemite that's going to sort it out i tell you um <laughs> jesus 
Yeah, I man, wanted to I mean, fly it's... that by you and, and get your thoughts just in terms of the, the foundational thinking there. So, so there's a really interesting mental exercise that, that Boyd had um, called making snowmobiles. Have you ever heard of this? No. So essentially you're, you're stuck on a mountain and you've got um, a pair of skis, a boat and some other thing, right? And it's like, you're, you're basically screwed. And as part of, it might even be in destruction and creation, but essentially that all the parts are there for you to fashion a snowmobile together. But you have to take apart the, the individual entities that you've been given, pull them apart, destroy them into their components, and then create something new. Um, but to your point, that's going to be absolutely useless to you unless you've got the right components and the right things to pull apart. Yeah. And the thing that, the thing that I was trying to find, which I wasn't able to, I'm, I'm reading a, a book about <laughs> construction theory at the moment. Uh, which is postulating that physics has ground to a halt because the mental, not the mental model, the, the paradigm with, within which scientific progress has been made of, you know, dynamical systems and starting conditions and, and, mm. um, and uh, movement is insufficient. So they propose this, this theory called um, uh, constructor theory which looks at things through a completely different lens and therefore can resolve things like, um, I haven't quite got to the bit where they, they claim to have solved um, uh, this kind of entropy and things like that, but because it's a different model and a different way of looking right. at things based on counterfactual. So not, not just what has happened, but what is possible to happen versus what is not possible to happen within a system. That I have to, they can, I have to check that out. Yeah, it's um well they, I mean, you know, they haven't been on Rogan yet. So <laughs> <laughs> all I've heard about is geometric unity. I I've I've only heard about Eric Weinstein's weird model. <laughs> so it's David Dutch is is um who okay, may have been I'm on have Rogan, to check that out. Possibly. Well, I will look him up and I'll give him a call and see if he'll, if he'll like explain it to me personally. <laughs> yeah. That's the better way to do it, yeah. But yeah, hey, I'm really yeah. enjoying that. So that and that and that and sand talk and um helgoland and this, this idea of looking at the world through relations rather than entities um has been extremely useful for me i mean that that's lateral thought right it's yeah yeah not looking at the individual things you have it's looking at the vastly more complex and combinatorial ways in which things relate to each other that's it that's it but it's all nothing if you haven't got your context right yeah, you've got no context right if you haven't got um if you don't have a good story, good narrative yeah. that um yeah. most reasonable people would sit and go, mm. And good abstractions. Abstractions yeah. let you build build the right good narrative. Good metaphors. Well narr yeah. narrative narrative is an abstraction in a way, right? It's a compression it of the 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 base kind of reality that you're trying to mm. explain in narrative. Well, mm. that narrative is an abstraction well, that's of that base reality. I described it, I think, was um, you're translating tangible things and phenomena into um, into the language of spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Somehow that has to come around into whatever that other imaginal space is that we carry that um, we can't quite pin down to a biological, uh, you know, set of um, stuff pinging around, uh, chemical reaction or whatever.
Yeah. Well, I think we've got something interesting great. there. And um, I, I think I think we're onto something with Waterloo and Gettysburg. <laughs> well, yeah, time. I mean, that, that's um, like figuring out. I did another podcast on UDA with a guy called Bob Gawley, who's um, he, he's CTO of a company called UDA.com. Uh, right. And we were talking about, um, you know, the rise of the commandos and how how that finding pivotal what what, um, what the germans call the, the schwerpunkt right the uh, the pivotal point the 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 center of gravity of the thing that you're trying to attack in this case but doesn't need to be attack yeah um and then arranging your resources in order to be able to address that pivotal point that's the difference between like the kind of insurgent mindset and the defender's mindset the defender's mindset is the one that creates the weak points in the first place mm. and i think there's probably something to dig into there with waterloo and gettysburg is that you mm. know these guys thought they were winning but they mm. had this weak spot that was exploitable that that caused them to fall apart oh my goodness yeah insurgent's mindset nice well that's a new frame i'm going to um i'm going to process that and apply it to some stuff <laughs> well, let's keep having some yarns, Rose. Oh, that's yeah. I've that got, good, I've got eh? loads on that insurgent insurgency and innovation. I wrote an article about that on LinkedIn a while back. That was um, pulling in a bunch of different stuff, network theory and oh. entropy and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think I'll make that my um, one of my rare reads, where I actually you know employ my amazing literacy skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. I'd love, love to hear your thoughts on it. But it was good. Yeah, definitely. As long as I get to talk talk to you about it afterwards, oh, I don't have to read absolutely. or write anything that's just floating in space lately. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, for awesome. us. We're so over time, but um, that's fine. Trying to I'm trying to keep. I would do that. I do this all day. The first thing, first one I did was three hours, so um, that was way too long. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so awesome. much. That was deadly. Cheers, Tyson. Have a good one, mate. Bye. Yeah. I'm not afraid of